0: stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, continuing to see uh, Paul, Timothy, Silas, their their travels, and Luke at this point. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And Father, we do ask that you would open our hearts as well, that you would, through the miraculous work of your spirit. Allow us to understand and respond to the truths in your word. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. According to Gallup poll, church attendance has been in decline over over several decades. 2019 was a, a low point in church attendance until 2020. And now here in 2021, we still have not recovered to to pre-COVID levels of church attendance. But it's, even if we did return to pre-COVID levels, uh, we would still be historically low. In fact, I think in the late 1950s, according to Gallup, whenever they conducted this poll, they, they asked people, have you attended church over the last seven days? In the late 1950s, one out of two respondents said, yes, we have. In 2021, this year, it was like three out of 10 people said that they had attended church over the last seven days, over the last week. And so that's, that's, that's uh, discouraging, right? It's, it's uh, something that we're mindful of, alarmed by. What's, what's the answer to that? What does it mean that to be in a culture where there's a decline in interest in spiritual things, or at least a decline in seeking out answers to spiritual things within the church? Well, if you ask the Internet... Uh, The internet has lots of suggestions that will give back to you about what a church should do to make people be interested in church attendance. I was reading some articles on how to uh, have people come to your church, how you can increase your church attendance, and there were some very interesting things different articles said. And and one article encouraged churches, in order to to get people to come into their, their church, or at least to come into their sphere of influence, they encouraged churches to increase their online presence, is how the article worded it. And they said there are, there are two things that a church can do to encourage online attendance or online presence. They need to increase their entertaining content and or increase their, their helpful content, their content with, with information. Here's, here's what the article said. It said, if a, church, if a church's channel can consistently produce either entertaining or useful content— it has the potential to become huge. Uh, many preachers, uh, this, this uh, author says, myself included, take 35 minutes to solve a problem that a YouTube video would only take 10 minutes to solve. Uh, this is likely one reason why our YouTube channels aren't growing. And then this is, uh, this is another sentence that I thought was, was very instructive and that I want us to, to think about. This is, this is a sentence. It said, Sadly... Sadly, many online church services aren't densely packed with helpful or entertaining content, and that's one reason why they aren't growing. Let me, let me read that again, and hopefully it'll be more entertaining this time. Um, <laughs> I'll juggle as I read it. Sadly, no, uh, Sadly, many online church services aren't densely packed with helpful or entertaining content, and that's one reason why they aren't growing. Now there are there are a lot of there are a lot of problems with that statement. Let me, let me just focus on two. First of all, and I know I'm going to get some pushback on this, but but first of all, there's no such thing as an online church service. Okay. Now, I'm very grateful to the Lord for the technology that we have, and I, I've talked with other pastors. Some pastors have said, "Hey, since uh, you know we're doing more." Uh, in-person services. Are you going to stop streaming to encourage people to come back? I I said, no, I think that the streaming of our services is a very useful tool. I know there are some people who are sick. I know that there are people who are traveling. I know that there are people who are home with sick children. And so I am very grateful to the Lord for technology. I I believe that there are some things that happen in a church service that a person who's watching uh, online can can benefit from, the, the, the teaching, seeing people worship. And, and so I think there's some saying connected to, to church life, I am very grateful for technology, so don't hear me say I'm, I'm against watching a church online service. But it's, it's not the gathered church, it's, it's different. And I think if you were to talk to someone who was at home or, or in the hospital and unable to attend services, they'd say, and it was, and it was a mature believer, they'd say, yeah, I, I'm grateful that I was able to ex- to experience some of this, but it's 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 not the same. I, I miss the ecclesia, I miss, I miss the church, the, the gathering. So that's that's one problem I have with the statement. But the other problem that I have with the statement that's a little bit more relevant for what we're talking about this morning, is, is this the article, that 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 statement assumes that numbers, not discipleship, is the goal of the church. And so the article encourages a church to to, to do some things that are going to increase numbers in terms of attendance, but unfortunately will also decrease the likelihood that discipleship is going to take place. In other words, you don't measure a church's success by the number of people who attend. You measure a church's faithfulness by the type of discipleship that's taking place within the body. Jared Wilson wrote this, he was talking about his concerns with the church growth movement and its, its dangerous preoccupation with with attendance numbers. And he he said this. He says you're in his context in which he's ministering, he says, the, the church isn't taken seriously by most if if you're not big. He says that the church growth movement is just kind of assumed in many places. It's like the air that you breathe. Church is if church is big or you're not doing something right. And he writes this, he says, the second pastor I was a youth minister for planted his church in 1995 in Houston. He's been there for 15 years now with a regular attendance of about 100 for the last 10 years. And our mutual friends consider this as hanging in there. As if 15 years of existence with 100 people engaged in discipleship was just hanging in there. It's a dangerous focus. The growth that God desires his church to experience is a growth that only he can create, a growth that only he can sustain. And so our, our focus isn't just in terms of the numbers of people that come into the church and, and come and experience our, our worship services on, in, 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 in present with, with one another. Our, our goal is a growth that can only be accomplished by the miraculous work of God, a growth that can only be accomplished as people are converted, as they receive new life, as they're born again, and walk a life of obedience to God. Here's kind of the main Statement that I want us to think about this morning as we look at Lydia. We look at Paul and his ministry in her life. My hope of eternal life for myself and those I love rests in the belief that God, it's God who gives life to those who are dead. Our hope in eternal life, our hope in eternal life for ourselves, our hope in sustained life right now, our hope in the type of growth that we desire to exist in our church is is only accomplished by God. And our confidence rests not in our work, but in the belief that it's God who gives life to those who are spiritually dead and continues to sustain that life. That's what we're going to look at as we talk about the miracle of conversion in the life of Lydia here in Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at three words We're going to look at the word proclaiming. We're going to look at the word regeneration. And we're going to look at the word baptism. Okay, and so we're going to look at each of those as we talk about the miracle of conversion. And let's look at the first word. The word, I've changed some of this if you got my notes earlier in the week, sorry. But the first word I want us to look at is the word proclaiming. As we look at the word proclaiming, we mean we announce the good news. The miracle of conversion includes the, the act of proclamation by God's people of the good news of Jesus Christ. So look at the text with me, if you will. And as we look at this, maybe we just put it, I don't think we have a map there again of, of Paul's missionary journey. We just look at this for a second. So here, uh, listen to what it says in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and on the following day to Neapolis. So they're there in Asia, My, 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 uh, Messiah, and they're there on the kind of the the top left there, the, the west, they, they sail west to uh, Macedonia, kind of the, the west, the um, eastern portion of Macedonia. They're in Neapolis and they travel 10 miles to Philippi. And that's, that's where we find them here in this passage. So they travel to Philippi. And, and what is Philippi? It says here it's a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Macedonia, if you remember Macedonia is the northern region of what we call Greece today, and Macedonia had been divided into four districts, and here they're in Philippi, and Philippi is, I think what he's saying here, Luke is saying here, is that Philippi is a leading city in this, this region of this area of Macedonia. The point is that Philippi is an important city, Philippi had large deposits of gold and copper. It was a very wealthy city, and it was a very Roman city. It's called here a Roman colony, and that the point that Luke is making here is that this city is very connected to Rome. It has a certain status as a colony. It was exempt from paying some taxes. It had certain legal protections that other cities under Roman control didn't have, and so it's a very, very Roman city. In fact, it's so Roman that it doesn't seem like there are a lot of Jews there, does it? Listen to what the, the text says. It says we remained in the city some days and then verse 13 it says on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So what does Paul normally do when he goes into a city? What what, what does he do first? Well, normally, he would go to a synagogue, and apparently, Philippi doesn't have a synagogue, and what you needed for a synagogue was at least 10 Jewish men, and apparently, they don't have that here in Philippi, and so instead, he goes to this place where there was prayer, and there's some women gathered, maybe there were one or two men, but there, there wasn't a huge Jewish population. And he begins to proclaim the Word of God. It says he speaks to the women who are gathered, and what does he say? Well, Luke doesn't tell us exactly what he said, but we have seen Luke telling us about the messages that Peter and Stephen and Paul have given before. So I think we know essentially what he's saying. He's, he's presenting the gospel. Remember what we defined the gospel as. Danny Akin's definition is is very helpful. He says, the gospel is the good news that Jesus came from heaven, died on the cross, having lived a perfect and sinless life, that he bore then in his body the full penalty of our sins, was raised from the dead, and those who repent of sin and place their faith in the perfect work of Christ can and will be saved. That's the gospel. Remember, we we, we talked about there are four questions that every good gospel proclamation answers. The, The questions are, who made me, and to whom am I accountable? The answer is God. We we, we answer the question, what's, what's our problem? And the answer is us. We're sinners. We're separated from God. What's the solution? Well, it's Jesus Christ. He came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and then the fourth question is, is what's, what's our, and, and rose from the dead. And the fourth question is, what's our response? How do we receive this, this gift of eternal life? And the answer is through placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. That's, that's the gospel that's proclaimed, and that's the message that Paul is proclaiming here outside Philippi. There is no conversion story that happens in the book of Acts apart from gospel proclamation. Think about that. Paul doesn't just wake up one day and say, you know what? I think I'm gonna become a Christian. I think I'm gonna place my faith in Christ. The Ethiopian eunuch doesn't just decide, you know what? I I think I'm gonna become a Christian. Lydia doesn't just decide, I'm gonna become later in this chapter, the Philippian jailer doesn't just decide on his own, I'm, I'm gonna become a Christian, a follower of the way. Every conversion story that we encounter in Acts requires the, the proclamation of the gospel. Some you know, I'm about to get into a section of this text where I'm going to really emphasize God's sovereignty. okay? We are gonna, we're going to lean heavily into God's sovereignty because God is sovereign over salvation, and there, there's no question of that in Scripture. And so I'm going to really lean into that here in a second. And uh, before I do that, though, I want to emphasize the responsibility that you and I have to be proclaimers of the gospel. Sometimes uh, people will ask me, "Hey, are, are are you a Calvinist?" And I'm always hesitant to answer that question because I don't know what they mean by the word Calvinist, right? Uh, sometimes I'll I'll say, "Well, you tell me what you think a Calvinist is," and then I'll tell you whether or not I'm I'm a Calvinist. And they say, "Well, I think a Calvinist is is someone who believes that uh, human beings have no will and they they just uh, kind of walk around like robots." Okay, not that. Okay, that's not what I am. Usually, I usually I'm careful about what I how I define myself. In fact, it's funny. I was I was at a, I was at something, and someone came up to me and they said, "Are you the pastor at, at Bethany Community Church?" I said, "Well, I'm, I'm a pastor at Bethany Community Church." I wasn't sure how much trouble Bethany Community Church was in, so <laughs> I'm a pastor. I you know I, I know the pastor. I, you know, he said, "Well, uh, are you guys Calvinistic?" And I said, "Well, uh, yes." And he said, thank you, and then walked away. And so I wasn't sure if I'd answer the question wrongly or rightly, but I wanted to kind of do some follow-up there, right? It's a, it's a loaded question. But, but here's, here's the thing. Some people think Calvinist means that, that God saves and there's no human activity involved, and, and, and that's simply not the truth. Our, our decisions are Real. Our our responsibility to act is real. Our responsibility to proclaim the gospel is real. And in the book of Acts, we see that God is absolutely sovereign over salvation, but we see that part of his sovereign plan is including you and I in that act of proclamation. No one is saved in Acts apart from human proclamation of the gospel. You and I must preach the gospel if we desire to see unbelievers saved if we desire to see our our parents place their faith in Christ, if we desire to see our our co-workers come to know Jesus Christ, if we desire to see our, our neighbors experience the beauty of fellowship with God, we have to proclaim the gospel. There is no way around that in Scripture. You and I are tasked with proclaiming the good news of Christ. We're Christians. We're followers of the way. We're Christ's ambassadors and witnesses. We testify to the power of the resurrected Lord. And if we aren't doing that essential task of what a Christian is, we're, we're, we're failing in an essential aspect of what it means to be a Christian. I mean, imagine if someone said, well, you ask someone, what, what do you do? Well, I'm, I'm a painter. Well, what have you painted? Well, nothing yet, but I'm praying that God opens the right doors, right? Well, I, I don't think you're a painter if you're not painting. Well, I'm an engineer. Oh, where do you work? Well, I don't do anything yet, but when God's ready, I will. You, know, you and I, if we we're Christians, we're, we're, we're people who proclaim, we're, we're witnesses, we're people who proclaim the power of the resurrected Lord, and we do that. It's part of who we are. I love our, our testimonies on Sunday morning. I think it was so helpful to, to think about what we do as, as people who are proclaiming the gospel. Before we go on and before we talk about regeneration and the life that God provides, I would just encourage you to, to write down a name. Maybe you do it in your head. Just, just write it. Who's someone that, that you believe that you, you, you desire to see God work a miracle of conversion in their life? Maybe it's a, a child. Maybe it is a, a neighbor. Maybe it is a, a co-worker. Maybe it's a, a friend at school. Just just think, of who, who is it that you desire to see place their faith in Jesus Christ? And understand, God's plan of conversion includes you proclaiming the gospel to them telling them about God and their, the, the, the problem with their sin and the solution found in Jesus Christ and the response of faith that we need to have in Jesus Christ to receive eternal life, you are part of God's plan to work the miracle of conversion in someone else's life. It's who we are. All right, let's talk about then regeneration. There's a second word I want us to think about, the word Regeneration. We see here in regeneration that God is the one who provides new life. Look again with me at at verse 14. Paul is is there, they're by the river, outside the city, and he's, he's teaching. It says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who is a worshiper of God. And what I wanted to, to explore here is the, the problem with being spiritually dead and then what God miraculously does. First of all, let's think about the problem with being dead. Lydia is, is one of the women there. She's sitting. She's listening. It says that she's a seller of purple goods. Now, uh, she's also from Thyatira. That's a, a place where they would have made the dye that they used to dye these these different uh Objects and, and, and cloth textiles, and she has come from Thyatira to Philippi to in, engage in trade. So she has connections back in her hometown. Maybe that's where she heard about the, the the one true God, the God of Israel. And she's here in Philippi. There's not a Jewish presence, and so she is going outside the, the city to where some some small group of Jews meet, and and she's engaged in this this trade activity. She would have been a very wealthy individual. I think that's why. Luke is mentioning this. But what do we know about her? Also, we know that the things that are true of every human being are are true of her as well. And it's, it's, it's possible that some of the things that Luke is mentioning here about her are impediments to her placing her faith in Jesus Christ. Her wealth, her culture, her origins, her sense of her own morality. Maybe she doesn't see her need. She is spiritually dead apart from God working in her heart. What's true of Lydia is true for each and every one of us. I want to talk through some of the barriers that exist to a person placing their faith in Jesus Christ and hearing and receiving the gospel. There's a lot of ways scripture describes the problems we have, but let me just start with a, with a big one. One problem with us is that we're spiritually dead, right? Ephesians chapter two, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. You walked in a sinful lifestyle. You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a huge problem, being dead. Many of us have had, the 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 situation uh, the where we've been at a, a funeral and we've seen the, the bodies of of loved ones and sometimes as we we look at the body in the casket we might say well they they look like they're they look just look like they're they're sleeping and there's some truth to that but, but as we look at that loved one we also realize there's there's a bigger separation here than than just sleep. I, I can touch, I can shake, and it's not going to make any difference in terms of their ability to re- respond to me. They're, they're gone. They're gone in a very profound way. There's a barrier we have to convert ourselves, to give new life to ourselves. We're enslaved. Our, our will is enslaved. Our our desires are enslaved. You say, well, hold on. Are, are you saying that I'm a robot? Because, I mean, Daniel, I... I choose to do what I want to do. Think about that sentence. I choose to do what I want to do. There, there's where the enslavement is, right? The the want. You can say, well, you know, I have willpower. I can choose to eat that cookie or or not eat that cookie. But even as we choose not to do something we think we want to do, there's a deeper want that's preventing us from doing the thing that we're choosing to do. In other words, we're enslaved at a very deep and foundational level that we have no ability to change. Ephesians 4. Paul writes, I, I, I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What is that? That's enslavement. They're, they have hard hearts. Because of their hard hearts, that the, the, the enslavement at the deepest level, they are alienated from the life of God. They're, they're ignorant. They don't know how to walk. They don't know how to live. And so they're living in a sinful way, but they're living in an overflow of what's in their heart. We're enslaved to sin, John 8, 34. Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In 2 Timothy, Paul will tell Timothy that there are, the people who are in opposition to him are enslaved to the devil. Our ability then to pursue and perceive spiritual truth is also a barrier to conversion and an inability we have to respond rightly to God 1 Corinthians 2 the natural person does not accept the things of God they're folly to him he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned Romans 1:18 describes what we do is we receive God's Truth and in the flesh it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so God gives us truth, and what do we do? In our apart from God's divine work, we suppress that truth. God says, This is who I am, we say, No, it's not. God says this is how you should live, we say, No, it's not. And we continually, by the nature of who we are, at the deepest level, we suppress the truth about God and how to live and how to walk in obedience. 2 Corinthians 4 describes a huge problem we have then as we proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We love the world. There are barriers to responding to the good news of the gospel. We're dead. We're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to the devil. Spiritual forces, we love the wrong things. We're deceived. We have an inability to respond to God's truth. Now here's what happens next, though. Continue to look at this verse with me. Look at verse 14. She's sitting there. And and look at the last half of the verse. What does it say the Lord did? it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by, by Paul. Now, there's there's two interesting words here in, in verse 14 that I think the ESV does a good job translating, but in the original text, Luke puts these words kind of really close together. First of all, he says that Lydia was, was hearing. He uses the word akuo. She was, she was listening. She was she was there, like, like everybody else, she's, she's listening to, to what's happening. And then Luke uses another word. He says that God uh, allowed her to uh, echo to, 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 to pay attention to what was being said, to be able to spiritually understand the truth of what Paul was saying. So she's listening, and then God allows her to, to perceive, to, to take hold of, to grasp, to pay attention to the spiritual truths that are being proclaimed. That's a work. That's what you see here. That's a work that only God can do. Now, look, um, it's interesting. This happens in the context of a a message, right? I mean, there are times where I know that the sermon is not going as well as I would like. You know, I, I look, everyone suddenly does this. I look around, I'm like, I am losing it, uh, them. And I've been in an audience where the, the pastor was losing me, you know. And, and when that happens, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's only so much you can do, right? And when that happens, it, it's, we'll split the blame on this, right? Uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's clearly my fault, okay? Like I've gotten so deep in the weeds, I'm on like, Subpoint C, Roman numeral two, and it's like, okay, this is this is on me. I I lost him, or maybe honestly, maybe sometimes I haven't grasped the beauty of the text in my own life the way that I needed to, and so I can't I can't share with you what I what hasn't happened for me. Or sometimes we're going to be fair here, right? Uh, sometimes it's on I'll put us, I'm in the audience too. Sometimes sometimes it's on us in the audience, right? There's something else going on in our life. Uh, We're not all that interested about in thinking about spiritual things. We're thinking about the the grocery list, or we're thinking about this the situation that's going on at work, or we're thinking we're in the singles group and we're thinking about that that cute girl two rows up. Is she looking at me? Is she looking at me? No, not looking at me. Oh, is she gonna look at me now? Oh man, what's going on? Our attention is diverted, right? That's true for Christians. We continue to need God's divine enabling to understand spiritual truths, to pay attention whenever God's word is proclaimed. But you know where the problem never lies? The the problem's never the text's fault, right? (laughs) The, the psalmist would say this, the psalmist would say, open my eyes in Psalm 119, 18, that I may behold wondrous things uh, uh, out of your law. They're there, that the beauty of God's word is there. And, and all of us can be in a room in a, a kuo, we can hear, but it's only God through his divine works that, that gives us the ability to, to pros-echo, to, to pay attention to and to, to grasp and to hold on to the spiritual truths that God desires us to know. There must be initially a divine work of God that gives life, to dead people that allows us to pay attention to and grasp and understand his word, the gospel. That word that we use to describe that is the word regeneration, being born again, granting new life, regenerate new life, born again. It's only in the, I think, it was only in the 20th century that we started thinking about being born again as something we did. So in the, kind of with the, some of the revivals of the 20th century, people started saying, well, I, I stood up and I was born again, or I, I walked an aisle and I was born again, or I, I raised my hand and I was born again. Being born again is nothing that you and I do. Being born again, getting new life, regeneration, is an act of God. And, and listen to some texts that, that tell us this. In fact, let me give you first a, a, a definition If you want a fuller definition, basically regeneration is new birth. But here's a longer statement. This is from Michael Bird. Regeneration is the new birth wrought by the Holy Spirit in a person. It involves restoring and recreating a person from spiritual death to spiritual life. It entails cleansing and transforming the human heart so that one may believe in God, enjoy God, and produce fruit for God. Regeneration is God's spirit establishing a a beachhead of new creation on the shores of the human heart. The spirit's work here is one of repossession and melting the idols of our heart and rescuing us from the evil powers that enslaved us. So what does God do? God, it's God who raises the dead. It's God who gives life. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Listen listen to what it says about this new life that we receive, and listen to what it says about who, who does it, who gives the life. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of, of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That That's something God is going to do. God is the one who takes out the old heart and, and gives us the new heart. He's the one who enables us to walk in his statutes and to obey his rules. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now, as God gives us new life, the entire rest of the Christian life flows from that new heart that God gives us. We see this, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, has been born again. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That's something that God works. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you've been saved. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. And then it talks about that we can walk in the works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do in verse 10. All of the Christian life, begins at this this moment of conversion of, of where god gives us new life allows us to be causes us to be born again takes away the heart of stone and gives us the heart of flesh the rest of the christian life flows from this and this is only a work that god can do as lydia sits there listening she can be as moral as she wants. She can be as generous as she wants. But apart from God divinely working in her life, all she's going to do is hear without perceiving. You say, well, Daniel, so what? You know, that sounds just, you know, regeneration just sounds like a, a big theological word. Let me give you some words of encouragement that, that I think help us understand why this idea of regeneration is, is so crucial for us to understand as those who love God, want to walk in obedience to him. First of all, this morning, I I know that there are those here this morning who desperately desire to see change in the life of a family member. You have a husband that you desperately want to see come to faith in Christ. You have a, a parent that is, is is not doing well physically, and you just, your hope against hope, your, your hope in, in Christ is that God would would see fit to bring them to to faith in His Son Jesus. You you have a, a person who's walking in just determined sin, and your heart aches for them because you love them so much. And our hope, as we think about this idea of regeneration, our hope is that God can work that change, and only God can do so. It's through fervent prayer that, that God would act, combined with the bold proclamation of the gospel, that this type of change will take place. Paul prays for boldness in Ephesians 6. And we think about Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, where people... Paul imagines that someone's asking him about the Jews. and He says, look, I have, I have unceasing anguish in my heart for the Jews. I, I wish I would be accursed that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. And then he, then he talks about God's sovereignty over, the sal, over salvation and the necessity of proclaiming the gospel. So you and I, we proclaim the gospel with the boldness that God can save and that God will save. And so I believe that this, this idea of regeneration is very hopeful for us because we can look at a person and think they're so separated from God. They've walked down this path of sin. Maybe there's no hope for them. That The beauty of the gospel tells us that God brings life to those who are dead and their trespasses in sin. I believe this is also, as we look at what happens here in this, this passage, this is also our, our hope in our own present sin. There are some of us this morning who look at our life and we would say, "God, I, I am not where I'm supposed to be. You've revealed in your your Word where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to think and how I'm supposed to and I am I'm not where I need to be." And the temptation can be, okay, I I need to kind of get my I need to get my life together. And then once I get my life together, I can come back to church and I can get involved in small groups and I can get involved in this, and I can get involved in that. And, and kind of once I get my pull myself up by my bootstraps and become the Christian I'm supposed to be, and 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 next week I'm gonna be much different, then we aren't much different, we become discouraged. The beauty of this doctrine of regeneration is that it's it's God who gives life. And the same way that I have access to eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ is the same way that I have access to continued life through faith in Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.13 tells us this, It's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then also this doctrine is encouraging as we think about eternity. We find security in the midst of of struggles. We we find encouragement as we think about how the doctrine of regeneration gives us hope for our eternal life. When we find ourselves thinking about eternity, we find ourselves aware in a very profound way of how short life is, we're facing health struggles or when we're facing struggles or, or seeing other people face health struggles and we're, we're very cognizant of how short life is, that the doctrine of regeneration helps us find security and that the, the God who gives life will continue to give life. Paul says this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of regeneration says, okay, this this new life that I've received is a, is a, is a sign that God is going to continue his work to me into eternity. Romans chapter eight, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One theologian says this, I am convinced that we cannot lose our regeneration or forfeit our new creation. Remember uh, Josiah, I think, I can't remember exactly what he said, but at the end of his testimony, he talked talked about the security that we have in Christ. And, and when we say that we are secure, once saved, always saved, we said, well, how can you know once saved, always saved? Well, it's not because of us. It's because of God. Again, this doctrine of regeneration, we have new life. I'm convinced we can't lose our regeneration. That's, that's a much better phrase, I think, than to say we can't lose our salvation. Although it's true, we can't lose our salvation. but we, we can't lose our regeneration, this new birth that's happened within us. He says, this theologian continues, you cannot lose regeneration any more than a butterfly can lose its chrysalis. You can no more lose new creation than you can lose a nuclear explosion. If we are regenerated, if we are new creations, we will inevitably and assuredly be saved. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's your encouragement this morning. Here's the last word I want us to think about, the word baptism. In baptism, we see the proclamation of new life. This miracle of conversion has taken place. The the gospel has been proclaimed. God has worked new life through that gospel proclamation, create a heart of flesh, and people have responded in faith, and now there's proclamation of that new life that happens. Lydia immediately shows fruit. Her response indicates a transformed heart. Now, later in the chapter, we're going to see other aspects of conversion. He's going to, we're going to see them, uh, the jailer places his faith in Jesus Christ. Th- that happens here between verse 14 and 15. Luke doesn't touch upon it, but she's placed her faith in Christ. Now she's baptized in, in her household as well. And now she's I she was reluctant to fully identify herself with Judaism. She was a God-fearer but not a full Jew. Now she is fully identified with Christ through baptism. And She indicates her changed heart by her desire for hospitality and Paul's willingness to baptize her and to go and to stay at her home, apparently she had a very large home, being a wealthy person, that indicates, you know, we we believe that her conversion is, is true, her story of placing her faith in Christ is genuine. Now, one, one quick thing here, because I'm sure some of you are asking this question, they say, you say, okay, well, what about her whole household? Some would say, well, this shows that you should baptize infants or very young children who haven't expressed faith in Jesus Christ yet you know the household would have included children but I would say well the text doesn't say that it doesn't specify infants it doesn't specify unbelievers others would say well Lydia must have been single or widowed so she probably didn't have young children I said, well the text doesn't say that either and that doesn't seem to apply to the jailer for sure later in the, the chapter so I don't think that's the, the right way to to answer this issue for those of us who hold a believer's baptism, I think it's far better to say, look, there's no specific case of a person being baptized apart from faith, no, no clear testimony to that. And there's a clear established pattern as we go through Acts. There's proclamation, so the gospel's proclaimed. Then there's regeneration, new heart, response of faith. And then there's baptism, a declaration of that faith. Why is baptism then here mentioned? And why is it so closely related to conversion? In Acts, what I think is happening is baptism represents the, the culmination of the conversion experience. The gospel's been proclaimed. God works his work in a person's heart. They respond in faith, and then they declare that faith through baptism. It's this public proclamation of what God has done. And now we're back full circle, right? It's proclamation. And through baptism, the gospel's proclaimed. People place their faith in Christ through regeneration. Then they're baptized, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged that the same God who allowed Lydia to not just hear, but to pay attention to and to receive the spiritual truths, be encouraged that that same God is at work in you. And God in his grace is continuing to, to change us, to conform us to the image of his, his son, Jesus. And my, my hope of eternal life for myself, for you, for all those who I love, rests in the belief that God is the one who gives life to those who are dead. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning our hearts are trusting in you. We know that many times our hearts are are heavy, our faith is not firmly in you, we're tempted to despair. And even when we are encouraged and and excited about life, sometimes our temptation is to turn our our eyes away from you in in those moments. And, And Father, we pray that through the the miracle of our conversion, through the miracle of you giving us new life, we would continue to, to trust in you as we hold these, these things that you've given us, as we, we believe them. We pray that we would see the, the miracle of conversion continue in our lives as we, as we see uh, you transform us. Father, help us to be bold in our proclamation that there are those who you've placed in our lives that we are, we are timid. As, as Paul says, give us boldness to proclaim the gospel as we ought. I'm encouraged by the, the, the prayer requests that I receive for gospel proclamation for specific people, for the, the people who are working in our house or the, the people who are uh, we see at the grocery store, that the people that we have just these short encounters with, the, the, our family members. Father, those, those people in our church who are requesting prayer for gospel ministry, we, we do beseech you for that this morning. We pray for boldness and a confidence in the good news of your son Jesus and a desire to see people worship him. And then for those of us who have been converted, for those of us who have seen the miracle of regeneration, we pray that you would give us the joy of seeing you work regeneration in the lives of, of other people as well, to see those who are spiritually dead come alive through faith in your son Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.